Thanks for joining us here at AG Kolkata. We are the church for the open arms and we serve in the city of joy, Kolkata. It is our desire to reach out to those in need and to be instruments of effective change in a hurting world. If you like to learn more about us, you can simply go to www.agkolkata.org. We hope that you'll enjoy today's message. No matter how severe the storms in the atmosphere, the most serious storms are the storms that hit us along life's journey. Yes, crisis, tragedy. We feel like our world is falling apart. Today, we are going to look at the life of a man in the Bible whose life was hit by the worst possible storm. His life was hit by an unbelievable series of tragedies. I'm going to read a few verses from the first chapter of the book where this man's life is recorded. And then we are going to witness a short video excerpt that captures for us in four and a half minutes, 42 chapters of the Bible. Okay, so let's read together Job chapter 1, verses 1 to 3, and we'll then skip to verse 8. In the land of Uz, there lived a man whose name was Job. This man was blameless and upright. He feared God and shunned evil. He had seven sons and three daughters, and he owned 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, and 500 donkeys, and had a large number of servants. He was the greatest man among all the people of the East. Now, by the way, Job is the oldest book in the Bible. It's written a long, long time ago. And if you compute all of those figures of oxen and cattle and sheep, etc., one of the versions translates it as one of the richest men in the world. He was wealthy. Okay, that's his wealth in those terms. Okay, so that is Job. Verse 8. Then the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? There is no one on earth like him. He is blameless and upright. A man who fears God and shuns evil. I want you to just watch this brief ex video excerpt. So Job begins with a strange story that takes place up in the heavens, which are described something like a heavenly command center. So God is there with these angelic creatures called the sons of God, and they're all there reporting for duty. And God points out this guy Job, his servant, showing how righteous and good he is. And then one of these angelic creatures approaches. He's referred to in Hebrew as the Satan. The Satan? Who is this? Well, this word is actually a title, which literally means the one who is opposed. So out of this whole crew, he is the one questioning how God is running the world. And he proposes that Job might not actually love God, that he's only a good person because God rewards him. If God were to take away all of the good things he gave to Job, then we would see his true colors. So he thinks Job is just working the system? That's exactly right. Maybe he's obeying just to get what he wants. So God agrees to this experiment and allows the Satan to inflict suffering on Job. 
and Job loses everyone and everything that he cares about. It is devastating. And remember, he deserves none of this. God himself said so. The remarkable thing is that in the midst of all this suffering, Job still praises God. At least for chapters 1 and 2. But then in chapter 3, we find out how he's really feeling inside. He unleashes this poem that reveals his devastation. It's a long, elaborate curse on the day that he was born. After this, some of Job's friends come to visit him to offer their help. And all of them are like, Job, you must have done something horribly wrong to deserve this. After all, we know God is just, and we know the world is ordered by God's justice and fairness, so you must be getting what you deserve. And for the next 34 chapters, the friends and Job go back and forth in very dense Hebrew poetry. His friends keep speculating about why God might have sent such suffering, and they even start making up lists of hypothetical sins that Job must have committed. But after each accusation, Job defends his innocence. And Job is innocent. He is. He's also on an emotional roller coaster. At some moments, he's very confident that God is still wise and just. Yeah, in other moments, he's doubting God's goodness. He even comes to accuse God of being reckless, unfair, and corrupt. So by the end of the dialogue, Job demands that God come and explain himself in person. And God does so. He comes in the form of a great storm cloud. Now, God doesn't give Job a direct answer. He doesn't tell Job about the conversation with the Satan. Yeah, he does something very different. He takes Job on a virtual tour of the universe. He shows Job how grand the world is, and he asks him if he's even capable of running it or understanding it just for a day. He shows Job how much detail there is in the world, things that we might see every day but really don't understand at all. But God does. He knows it all intimately. He pays attention to the beauty and operations of the universe in ways that we haven't even imagined and in places that we will never see. Then to conclude, God shows Job two wondrous beasts and brags about how great they are. Yeah, they are dangerous. I mean, they would kill you without even thinking about it. And God says they're not evil. They're actually a part of his good world. And then that's it. That's God's whole defense. It's kind of weird. I mean, what was this all about? It seems to be this. From Job's point of view, it looks like God is not just. But God's perspective is infinitely bigger. He's dynamically interacting with a whole universe of complexity when he makes decisions. And this is what God calls his wisdom. So Job asking God to defend himself is actually kind of absurd. He couldn't comprehend this kind of complexity even if he wanted to. So... Where does this leave us? Well, it leaves Job in a place of humility. He never learned why he suffered. And yet, he's able to live in peace and in the fear of the Lord. By the way, that was from the Bible Project. You read scripture. A wonderful summary of the, the story of Job. Just to summarize the summary, I want you to try and Digest that, okay? Can you imagine? Such a man of such great wealth, all gone in one afternoon. Talk about a stock exchange crash. 
Can you imagine the unbelievable grief when all of your children, seven sons and three daughters, are snatched in an instant? And so here he is lying for months on an ash heap on the edge of town. Open sores all over his body. Such a great man is now the object of shame and scorn of anyone and everyone who passes by. To the point where even his wife is ashamed of him. Now that hurts, doesn't it? When your wife comes to you and says, you know what, look at you. You don't have any dignity left. The only thing for you to do is to die with dignity. So hey guy, why don't you just curse God and die? Is there a deeper pit possible than that? What is amazing is, at first, Job bears all of this with incredible patience. In verse 21 of the first chapter, this is how he confesses his faith. He says, well, of course, he tells his wife, uh, when she tells him to curse God and die, he said, shall we accept only good things from God? But then he says these these amazing words, immortal words. He says, naked I came from my mother's womb and naked shall I return. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Can you imagine such faith? A man who great wealth and fame had not spoiled. Very rare on our planet, isn't it? And so he bears this with amazing patience, but as time goes by, his faith wavers, and there's reason for this. He has three friends. We call them Job's comforters, somewhat ironically. Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar. We call them comforters ironically. It's almost an idiom now because they don't really bring any comfort. All they bring is accusation. What they say to him, Job, we saw the summary of that. Your suffering is because of some serious sin in your life. You need to find it out. Because Job, from that point of onwards, can't take it anymore. And in trying to defend himself, he begins to say things about God that are not true and complains against God's justice and even questions God's character. <clears throat> Excuse me. At this point in time, a fourth figure comes on the, on the scene, a young friend named Elihu who rebukes both Job and his friends. And the good news is his words are some, somewhat more comforting. And he reassures Job. He says, Job, God really loves you as a friend and a child. But the reason you're going through all this is because God wants to purify your faith. But this is the climax of the book. As Elihu's speech ends, chapter 37 of this book, a thunderstorm gathers. And out of the whirlwind... Job hears the voice of God and listen to how, how God speaks in Job 38 verses 1 to 3. Then the Lord answered Job from the whirlwind. Who is this that questions my wisdom with such ignorant words? Brace yourself like a man because I have some questions for you. And you must answer them. I like the message rendering of this. God answered Job from the eye of a violent storm. Why do you talk without knowing what you're talking about? I want you to notice, and I'm speaking especially to 
of course, to everyone here, but especially for those who've either been through a storm or right now at this point in time, there's a storm raging in your life. Or perhaps even within the deep recesses of your soul. Please notice, to a man of faith going through a storm, God chooses to speak from within the storm to the storm in Job's life. And if we want to look briefly at what is God's message to Job and to us in the midst of his storm. And there's a threefold message. The first is simply this message to Job and to us is I am God, you are man. Or woman, you are human. Over 25 times in the course of his defense, Job asked the question, why, 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 repeatedly. And basically, his questions revolve around this single, single theme. He says, God, things don't seem to make sense. Why? He even suggests that, Lord, Things are not right in your universe. This is not how things should be. Do you find yourself in prayer sometimes saying that to God? God, this isn't right. Don't raise your hand. Lord, this isn't right. I think how patient God is. Because he says, what is right? Who defines right? Who decided what is right and wrong in the universe? You're talking to me, buddy. So as we saw in that video, instead of answering, God takes Job on a virtual tour of the universe and asks him all kinds of interesting questions about it. Verses 4 to 6, Job 38, the message version. These are the kind of questions God asks. Where were you when I created the earth? Tell me, since you know so much. Who decided on its size? Certainly, you'll know that. I know there is divine sarcasm in that, okay? Who came up with the blueprints and measurements? How was its foundation poured? Who set the cornerstone? Then God, God goes into detail about the various wonders of the natural world. The animals, birds, vegetation, so on and so forth. And us at every stage, ask the question, do you know how or where it all came from, my friend Job? Of course, Job doesn't have a clue. All of this is beyond his imagination. And so what's the point of this? Simply to show Job and to us who often ask these questions of God, that the universe is a vast, complex place. Job, there are a hundred million things about running the world which you don't know. You see, friends, an almighty, powerful God knows and he has his eye on every detail. And he knows it all and is in total control precisely because he is God. You and I don't Precisely because 
we are human. And it's the fourth friend, Elihu, who puts it succinctly, clearly. He said, God is greater than any mortal. He's greater than any human being. That should be obvious, but we often tend to forget, don't we? So that's the first message. God speaks to Job from out of the storm. I am God. You are human. You live in my universe. A universe I created out of nothing. I created it by my will, for my pleasure, and my purpose. Hello? Is it speaking to someone today? Is there anything about the universe you would like to change if you could? No, no, Pastor, not my universe. I would like to change. And God says to you, sorry, you are part of my universe. So that's the first message. The second message is this, and it flows from the first. I am big, really big. Hmm. You are small, very small. I know that sounds trite, but I want you to want this to register in your mind. I use big words, long sentences, you're going to forget. But when I say, I am God, you are human. I am big, really big. You are small, very small. You're going, you, when you go home, you remember this. Why do you talk so much when you know so little? That's one rendering of Job 38 verse 2. See, Job's defense, his resistance, his confusion, essentially boiled down to this. He's saying to God in his protest, I'm a good man, God. Why have these bad things happened to me? By the way, all of us have asked the second part of that. He goes on to generalize, to philosophize. He says, God, if, if this is your universe, why do bad things happen to good people? And all of us have asked this at some point of time or other in our lives. Whether when you're disappointed after doing not as well in an exam, after you prayed and you said, God, I deserve a better deal. Or when you're at the graveside of a loved one. Lord, why so early? Lord, why this disease? Why at this time? Why did I lose my job despite doing my best to live right? Lord, why does this happen to me? Well, Job was like us. Or I can say it in reverse, we are like Job, aren't we? But the interesting thing is God never gives Job an answer. Instead, he responds with a series of counter questions. Some have counted over 70s. One author says 77 questions. And we're not going to read 20, 77 questions this morning. But just to give you a flavor, he says things like, Where were you, Job? Were you there when I set the limits of the oceans? You were not. And you don't know how I did it. By the way, in the 21st century, despite all our sophistication, remember? When that Malaysian airline disappeared in the ocean, the oceans are so big, 
You remember how long it took for them to find it? With all of technology, God says, I set those limits on that. Job, were you there? No, God, I was not. That's why you don't know how I did it. Can you command the dawn to rise? Of course you can't do it. You don't know how. I've been doing it every day for several thousand years. And by the way, it's going to happen again tomorrow. Do you know about it? Do you know where light comes from, Job? Not the kind of light that comes on when you turn a switch on, but light in the universe. Can you make it rain? I can do this and many other things which you can't do. I created light. I invented nature's water cycle. I can do all of this. You can imagine Job's, aunt, Job's reaction, okay? can imagine his eyes growing wider and wider in wonder and amazement because he doesn't have a clue about what God is talking about. It's a little bit like you and I sitting when a specialized scientist tries to explain to us, you know, the details of quantum physics. He begins to realize how stupid and ignorant I have been. Here's the thing, friends. The universe is full of mysteries. Far beyond the human imagination. We are surrounded by mysteries. And so Job suddenly realizes that in the light of all of the mysteries in the universe that surround us, my pain, my suffering, and all the questions I have pale into insignificance. How dare I presume to question and judge the ways of God. And th this is essentially what God is saying to Job. Kindly, lovingly. Job, there are many questions about the universe for which I cannot give you answers. Because your mind is too small. There are reasons, there are answers, but they are too deep and complex for you to understand Are you with me? Because we, I hope, are traveling with Job along this journey. And I hope you'll come to the place where Job does. And this is the great thing about Job, his response. He gets the message. So at the end of God's first speech, Job chapter 40 verses 3 to 5 this is how Job responds. He says, I am nothing. How could I ever find the answers to those questions, God? I will cover my mouth with my hand. I have said too much already. I have nothing more to say. Let's read the message version. And I hope at some point in time, this becomes your response. I'm speechless. Come on, read with me. I'm speechless in awe. Words fail me. I should never have opened my mouth. I've talked too much, way too much. I'm ready to shut up and listen. I'm not looking at anybody here. Trying not to. What do we do when we pray? 
You know what we tend to do? Talk, talk, talk. Complain, complain, complain. Try to change everything around us. And there's a place for that because he says, come and ask, come and see, come and knock. But friends, what we fail to do is what Job realizes here, is that it's time to shut up and listen. And this is the big message. And what Job is saying, God, I get it. You are big, really big. In fact, your knowledge, your nature is mind-boggling, blows my mind, God. You're big, really big. I am small, very small. That's the second message. I am God, your man, your woman. Never forget that. Second message, I'm big, really big, beyond your comprehension, beyond your imagination. Very small. Never forget that. As a result, that brings us to the third and final message. God's voice speaking from within the storm. And it's this, I may test you must trust. The true story of a young man who when he was a baby had fallen down a flight of stairs and had shattered his back. He had spent most of his life in and out of hospitals. On one occasion, he was sharing a testimony and people couldn't believe what he was saying because he made the statement, God is fair. And so in fact, there was a pastor who heard this. Went up to him and asked him, he said, how old are you, son? And he said, 17. And he couldn't help it. He went on to say, but may I ask, how, how, how many years have you been in hospital? 13. The pastor couldn't believe his years. You've been in hospital You've spent 13 years in hospital out of 17 years of your life and you still think that's fair? The young man smiled, 17-year-old little uh, young man, okay. He said, well, God has all eternity to make it up to me. And one of these days, we are going to preach a message that will, will just put things in perspective. How short life is. How really short life is. In contrast to eternity. Life, no matter how long you live, is like a dot compared to the unending life that represents eternity. And whatever God is doing, on this planet, in this universe, during our lifetime, is nothing but preparation for life in eternity. I may test. You must trust. I don't think it's a coincidence that our beloved co-founder is here when I'm speaking this message. Some of you know this, but many of you may not because you may have joined this 
church or started attending the services recently. A little over 60 years ago, before the AG Church or this mission was established, there was nothing. This young couple, yes, young couple, Mark and Halda Buntain came to the city. And Pastor Mark Buntain was, because this, we've already heard about him, his passion, his burden, and even today his, he remains a legend. Worked very closely with Mother Teresa in fighting the poverty and the, the problems caused by refuge, the refugee crisis. Cal Calcutta streets were filled with refugees, people dying on the streets, children running. And so everything you see about the AG mission, the hospital, the schools, the feeding program all emerged during his lifetime. And here was this giant of a man, an apostle to India. And one, of, one June day, what we view as tragedy happened when he had that unfortunate accident. And within a couple of days, God called him home. And this church mission was in a tailwind, a crisis. People said, what's going to happen? Because he was this giant. The world looked at Calcutta. The world looked at AG mission because of his, of the, of his name and his reputation, his, his power as a preacher, his passion as a missionary. 29 years ago. And of course... That was a time when our beloved co-founder sister, Halda, the weight fell upon her shoulders. 29 years ago, a lady, a foreigner, she was an accomplished administrator. They used to call her a living computer, an administrator. But she was not a preacher, she was not a pastor. But the lot fell upon her. But can you imagine when your heart is broken, when you're going through the agony of such a tragedy, such a huge test? Today, 29 years later, she continues to serve the Lord with the same passion, the same intensity. Never once challenging, questioning in public. I'm sure those struggles were there in her spirit, in her heart. Lord, why? Those of us who were close to her know there were moments she is, that was the first question. Lord, why? Such a time as this. We will know in eternity. But rather than asking why, she picked up the baton and continued to run. And you and I are here this morning in this place because of her faithfulness through trial. One of the most painful trials any human being can go. But can you imagine the questions? Lord, we are serving you far away from our home country, faithfully, doing everything right. Why did you do this? Here's the testimony, friends, the proof that God is the God of the storm. Hallelujah. 
He is with Job in the midst of the storm. He held this wonderful great lady's hand through the storm. Just as he is with you in the midst of your storm. Please hear this loudly and clearly. Because storms are occasions when Satan tries to come in and pull us down, discourage us. He tells us God's silence means that he's displeased with you. That nothing could be further from the truth. His silence does not mean loss of favor. The suffering he allows is not punishment. It's not a sign of his anger or displeasure. We live in a world that is amazingly beautiful. But this world is still a battleground between the forces of good and evil. And guess what? If you're on the side of evil, you have a walkover almost every day. Because Satan is the God, little g of this world. But if you're on the side of good, you know what? You're part of the occupation force. You're part of God's advance. And guess what? Not a day will go by without Satan deciding he's going to get you. I don't say that to scare you. But friends, that's why even though a believer's life is wonderful and blessed, amen, you wouldn't be here if it wasn't. It's marked by trials and testings every day. I don't want to digress here. But I've said it before and I'm going to say it again. If you're in this business of following Jesus, just so you can be blessed and have a ticket to heaven, God bless you, you'll make it to heaven, but you're going to have lots of days of regret. Regret in heaven? Yes. Because God has saved you, not just, please forgive me, I say this in love, not just so you could warm up you on Sunday. We heard this, from our ladies, short while ago on Mother's Day. We are blessed to be a blessing. He wants you to be on the front line, on the clash, of the clash with the enemy forces of evil. And there's no battle without some wounds or, or scars. So if you're in this battle, and I, uh, this fight and expecting a walkover, sorry to disappoint you. And if everything is going perfectly for you, chances are you're sitting on the sidelines. Chances are Satan has said, you don't give me any trouble, so it's okay. I'm not going to bother you. Pain never feels good, does it? Suffering never feels good. But Romans 8 tells us, in verse 28, God uses everything. The good times and the bad times to further his good purpose. Listen to this. Let's read it together. Please, Romans 8, 28. And we know that in all things. Let's read that again. And we know that in. One more time. We know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. And so this is God's third message to Job. Job, you may not understand why I allow the things that are happening to you. 
But real faith doesn't complain, question. Real faith doesn't second guess, second guess my goodness. Real faith doesn't pass judgment on what I do or what I permit in my universe. Real faith simply trusts me. Job, bless his heart, gets it again. And earlier we had seen glimpses of his deep trust. Even before this moment, in Job 19, for instance, uh, even, in, even in the depths of his despair, this is what he confesses. Verse 25, I know that my Redeemer lives and that in the end he will stand on the earth. And after my skin has been destroyed, yet in my flesh I will see God. I myself will see him with my own eyes. I and not another. How my heart yearns within me. You know why this is so amazing? This is before the coming of Jesus. Before we have the first fruits of a resurrection from the dead. Job did not have a belief in heaven and hell, the future life as we do. He didn't have that vision. You know what he's confessing? He's saying, you know what? In the course of my trial and testing, if I die, God will raise me up. God will not let me down. Wow, such faith, such trust. But now Job comes to God with a mature trust, one that is, that is nurtured by repentance, brokenness, and a fresh revelation of who God is. This is at the end of his journey now, after he has heard God speak in Job 42 verses 3, verses 5 and 6. Let's read it together. This is, this is his confession. He says, surely I spoke of things I did not understand things too wonderful for me to know let's read that together my ears had heard of you but now my eyes had seen you therefore i despise myself and repent in dust and ashes oh god i never knew you in the way i see you now please forgive me i come to you in repentance friends it's beautiful that's why the lord's table is so important because it gives us, it forces us to come to a place of repentance. Lord, what have I said or done that has grieved you, that has hurt you? This is the time to repent and say, God, not only I'm sorry, but I'm going to change my ways. I'm going to turn around. And you know what happens when we do that? Revelation. Supernatural. Unveiling of who God is. We see God in a way we never saw him before. And that's what Job says here. He said, God, I had heard it. Now I see it. As a result, Job is now the kind of person who will trust God no matter what comes, good or bad. His faith is unassailable. His, his, his passion for God is unstoppable. You're seeing living evidence of the fruit of suffering and pain. When you come through such test and trial and you are able to look at the enemy in the face, you can do what you like. I'm going to trust in him. Lord, whatever the test and trial, I will trust in you. You know what happens as a result? God gives Job the power and authority to bless his friends. God says to his friends after rebuking them, 
he rebukes them for being bad advisors to Job, giving him bad advice. And he says, my servant Job will pray for you and I will accept his prayer. Please notice, these, these friends, so-called comforters, had accused Job. But there's no anger or bitterness against his friends. In fact, he prays for them and his prayers release blessing. He didn't do it because he wanted God's blessing. He did it because his heart was purified. But God then rewards him with a double portion blessing. So whatever he had lost, God restores to him in a double portion. Just in closing, friends, I wonder what your response is as you hear the story of Job. I'll tell you what is a common response. Wow, what a wonderful story of faith. But under my breath, I hope God doesn't ever test my faith like that. I don't think I can cope with such testing, such pain. If that is our response, we've misunderstood the story. The story of Job is not just a guidebook on how to survive pain. God is not a sadist. He doesn't get pleasure out of allowing pain in our lives. Then what is the real point of the story? I want you to get this. It's very important. There is a mountain of faith before every believer that God wants us to climb. And the reason God wants us to climb is because at the pinnacle of that mountain is a breathtaking panoramic vision of God. It's, you can only see it when you reach the mountain, the, the, the top of the mountain. You have to climb to get there. And that climb involves testing, difficulties, tests of endurance. And some decide, no, I'm saying, I don't want to make this claim. But here is the promise when you reach the top, you will see God in a way you have never seen before and experience Him as never before. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand, but if you would like that vision of God, friends, embrace the trial when it comes. Yes, the storm can be painful. When we go through a storm, there are difficult, heart-wrenching questions. Why? Not only that, Lord, not only the storm, when I pray, it's, you're silent. The response of the book of Job is simply this, you don't know enough to understand why. Here's the silver lining. You may not know why, but if you listen closely, you will hear God's voice in the storm. Like Job heard it. Oftentimes, it's a whisper. A whisper you can only hear when your heart is still and you take time to wait in His presence. And this is what He will say. God's voice in the midst of the storm. Just trust me.
just trust me. Why do we trust Him? Because His promises are true. Why do we trust Him? Because His love is real. Why do we trust Him? Because His purposes are sure. How do you know that? The answer is in the cross of Jesus. Thanks for listening to this message from AG Kolkata. We hope you would stay connected by following us online. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram by using at AGC Kolkata. We would love to know how this message has touched your life. Please take a moment to share your story by emailing us at stories at agkolkata.org. Hope you have a great week ahead.